you know, this is the advantage of a pragmatic trial is that, you know, we weren't doing anything before and we're continuing to do nothing. And so, uh, eventually, <laughs> to you guys are exceptionally good at doing nothing. Yeah. What do you work? For? What do you work for the government? <laughs> exactly. Right? And, and so, uh, welcome to Freely Filtered. The irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses Reed's NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice from some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Jordy. Hey, I'm Jordy Cohen. I tweet at at Jordy underscore BC. I am a nephrologist, epidemiologist, and hypertension nerd at the University of Pennsylvania. Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I tweeted Jay Waits, and I don't have any conflicts of interest for the episode, but I really still love chlorothaladone at the end of the day. And Swap. Hey, Swap Nil Harimat. I'm a nephrologist uh, and a hypertension specialist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I don't have any conflicts apart from being a huge fan of chlorothaladone and I'm still digesting these results. Uh, I am I can be found on Mastodon at hswapnil at medmastodon.com. And uh, tonight we have a special guest. We have the principal investigator and instigator of the Diuretic Comparison Project. Is that what we call it, the Diuretic Comparison that, Project? That's correct. We have Arif Ashani. Arif, uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, Arif Ashani. I'm a nephrologist uh, by training. My day job is uh, I'm the chief of medicine at the Minneapolis VA uh, Medical Center, and I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota as well, and I'm a, I'm a hypertension guy as well. Excellent, excellent. So tonight we're talking about the Diuretic Comparison Project, and this is a really Really interesting trial that compares hydrochlorothiazide to chlorothaladone. And for uh, decades, this debate has been simmering in nephrology and in hypertension. There has been a lot of near randomized trials. There was a story about mi the Mr. Fit trial. And I, and I don't know the all the details, but I believe that initially patients could be either on chlorothaladone or hydrochlorothiazide. And then in the middle of the trial, they switched from everybody to chlorothaladone. And then a post hoc analysis said, oh, wow, the survival in the chlorothaladone group was way better than the hydrochlorothiazide group. And we kind of almost gave magical properties to chlorothaladone. And we finally got a, boy, I can't imagine anybody describing this to anything but a definitive trial saying that at least in this study, there was no signal, nowhere, nothing. I know there's going to be some, there will be something about people with previous heart attacks and I might as well talk about that. But it's remarkable how little difference there was, even in things that you would think would be a no-brainer. Like to me, in my hands, chlorothaladone is a much more powerful antihypertensive, but there was no blood pressure signal here. Yeah. So I mean you say but I, guess, I mean you say it's a debate. Please, please. Yeah, I don't think it's a debate. It was never a debate. You know, uh, anyone who knew anything knew chlorothaladone is better. Uh, so 
I would agree. You know what, Swap? I so love that you just say what everybody's thinking. Yeah. It's not even up for debate. We all know that clothalidone is a better antihypertensive. Exactly. And if you look at any of the randomized control trials, like all the guidelines have thiazides. But if you look at the randomized control trials that were done with the thiazides, they were all with thiazide-like drugs, right? MRFIT, of course. But all had, did not have hydrochlorothiazide. It had clothalidone. Uh, you look at Sprint. What did it have? Chlorthalidone. Uh, you look at Hyvet. What did it have? Indapamide, which is a thiazide-like drug similar to uh, hydrochlorothiazide. You look at the hydrochlorothiazide trials. You know, like Accomplish had hydrochlorothiazide. It flunked against uh, CCB uh, ACE inhibitor. You had uh, HOPE-3. We talked about that with uh, herbicide and hydrochlorothiazide. It did not show superiority. Uh, our bias is, has been justified until now, of course, that all the strong data really comes from chlorothalidone. But that's the trial evidence. Uh, and I know Jordi is itching to say something, but even if you... Yeah, Jordi's going to talk about background. Jordi, why, why, why don't you fill us yeah. in with some background? What do you got? So now that Swap, as usual, took the thunder from under <laughs> me. Um, but honestly, to take a step back, the, the people who aren't the hypertension nerds, who don't know all of these trials to be able to quote off of their cuffs like Swapnel. Let's take a step back and say, why did we think chlorothalidone was better? And Joel alluded to this, that there was evidence suggesting that chlorothalidone could potentially have these godlike effects of preventing cardiovascular disease that we all presumed was mediated by blood pressure effects. Why was that? Because of the fact that they have very, very different properties. We know that hydrochlorothiazide is a shorter half-life medication than chlorothalidone is. The half-life of uh, hydrochlorothiazide is around 8 to 15 hours once you've been on the drug long-term. When you first started, it's even shorter. Or if you're a normal patient who's not taking your medications regularly, it's shorter, more like 6 to 9 hours. And the thought process is, especially when we're thinking about patients who are prone to more severe hypertension, these are often very sodium-avid patients who are eating, as a typical American, their biggest meal for dinner. If you're taking your hydrochlorothiazide in the morning with when you wake up or with your breakfast, it's wearing off, or at least it's worn off quite a bit by the end of the day when you're having that salty meal for dinner, making you more prone to having nocturnal hypertension, making you more prone in general to having maybe less consistent blood pressure control overall. And so that was what our thought process was. The physiology made sense compared to chlorthalidone, which is twice as potent, meaning that you can give a patient half the dose to get the same benefit as hydrochlorothiazide from a pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effect and had these incredible half-lives. We had Rajiv Agarwal on the show for Click, and I remember him talking about how he would give patients a half a pill of chlorothalidone three times a week and see these amazing effects from it in patients with late-stage chronic kidney disease. And that's because of this incredible half-life. You can see up to 60-hour half-life when people are on it long-term. It's a bit more variable than hydrochlorothiazide, but that's what you get when you have these incredibly long half-lives. And so you can see patients receive this enormous benefit. It's really helpful also when you have these less adherent individuals who might not be taking their medications every day because it's going to cover you for longer even if you're not taking it every day as long as you're taking it semi-regularly. And it's a lot more bang for your buck from that regard. So it's understandable that just from those nerdy properties in themselves that we thought that there might be more benefit. The downsides that had been shown repeatedly in some smaller studies was that chlorthalidone seems to have more electrolyte effects that are negative. More hypokalemia, maybe a little bit more risk for hyponatremia than hydrochlorothiazide, but part of that went along with the fact that it's more potent. And so again, as, as with any medication, when you get to these greater levels of potency, you may see a little bit more adverse effects. Arif. On the 
other hand, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> go, go, keep don't don't stop, keep going. On the other hand, there's also the the issue of why don't we see chlorothalidone more used more often in the U.S. Uh, it was mentioned in the introduction in the article. Eleven and a half million people receive hydrochlorothiazide in the U.S. every year. About one and a half million people receive chlorothalidone. Part of it is because it's really mostly something that us nephrologists throw at patients because it's our magic wand of oh, your patient's blood pressure is inadequately controlled. Let's let's change their HCTZ to chlorothalidone. But that doesn't and seem like a compelling argument. It's like it's as if family practitioners and internists don't want to control blood pressure. They want to control blood pressure too. Why don't they know the secret? Well, the other reason is that it's not part of fixed-dose combinations in the U.S. except with azelsartan because it's a little bit harder to compound as a fixed-dose combination drug. And it's and the azelsartan combination is expensive. It's I don't even think it's generic yet. I believe it's still brand name. And so these are some of the limitations we have. We don't have nearly as many options for ways to Arif, get how did you end up at the top of this pyramid running this trial? Is this your idea? Uh, so it, it turns out it actually wasn't my idea. It was a, a gentleman named Frank Letterly who we acknowledge in the study. You know, so he's a mentor of mine at the Minneapolis VA. Uh, so he started this study, that this concept, you know, he had always wanted to compare the two drugs and there was never anyone who was willing to pay for the comparison. And yeah. so that's how the, the whole idea started that could we come up with a pragmatic trial to figure out how to compare the two studies at low cost? Because that, you know, that's the key. You know, unfortunately, he passed away about a year into the trial and uh, that's when I took over. Uh, so, so uh, unfortunately, uh, that, that's a sad story. Arif, everywhere we look now, we're seeing pragmatic trials all over the place. Yeah. But it, you know, and we kind of talked about this last on the last episode with Dr. Garg is that we hadn't seen a lot before, what, a year or two ago, you know, kind of almost before COVID. I don't remember seeing any of these. Did you have a roadmap or were you just kind of making this up as you went along? Because it seems, I mean, really compelling to trial design, but yeah, I think this is uh, particularly at the VA, uh, but but almost anywhere. This is probably first of uh, first of its kind of a, of a trial. And I think why are we all of a sudden seeing a lot of pragmatic studies? I think the infrastructure is now in place uh, for pragmatic trials. Uh, you know, I think we're much more comfortable with big data. I think we are much more likely to have electronic medical records where we can extract things. I think the groundwork has been laid that you know using claims to identify diagnoses. Is pretty good, you know. It's it's not to the same level of a, a bunch of people sitting around a table saying, "Is this an MI? Yes or no?" But it's clinically relevant, and so you can involve many more people with this type of study. You can recruit at centers. And it'll that, affect yeah. both sides, yeah. both arms, the same, right? Both arms will be affected by the same that type of. Uh... Exactly, it's random noise, and the random noise will go away when you do it when you randomize people. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I love this discussion of pragmatism. We'll come to that way more in the methods. Just a couple of things I wanted to. Mention. Mention is that you know the this is the biggest <laughs> head-to-head comparison between hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothalidone. But my my confidence in chlorothalidone is not misplaced. Apart from all the things Jody Jody mentioned, if you look at head-to-head comparisons, there are some. So there is there is very small just blood pressure outcome stuff, which shows that you know chlorothalidone is more potent. But it's also more potent for nighttime blood pressure lowering. Uh, because it's longer acting. So that's one. Yeah. And and because there is no head-to-head, what do you do when you don't have a head-to-head comparison? Like there have been all these trials of, you know, ACE inhibitor with hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothalidone with ARB. How do you combine them? So you can combine them using a technique called a network meta-analysis where, you know, there is no direct comparison, B, but you kind of say A is not compared to B, but A is compared to C and B is compared to C. 
So we can use that to extrapolate. And, and that one, there is one done by George Rausch, I think, about a decade ago. And that was like, you know, clearly favoring chlorothalidone. Uh, you know, when it comes Absolutely. to mace reduction, there's a fantastic... Here's my question. Here's the, here's the core question. Do all of these authors that find this clear benefit to chlorothalidone say that it's because of better blood pressure control or do they say it's because of some other magic chlorothalidone ability that we're not aware of? Right? Is it some kind of off-target effect of chlorothalidone, or is it just better blood pressure? So to my knowledge, most of it's thought to be mediated through blood pressure, not any other off-target effects. They're both hitting that sodium chloride cotransporter in the distal convoluted tubule. There's like not some other magic difference that we're expecting between them. But what the difference in a lot of these head-to-head trials was, like for example, Bacris did a great one in 2012 comparing chlorothalidone and azelsartan versus HCTZ and azelsartan. It was at the same doses of the diuretic. Mm. It was 12 and a half to 25 of each of them. So part of it was that greater potency of the chlorothalidone. And then to Swapnil's point, a big part of it is the 24-hour blood pressure, which wasn't something that was able to be done here because it's not something we're able to really do in routine practice. It's not something that we're doing day to day in our huge, enormous, everyday patient coming into primary care clinic. It should be, but it's not. And so we really can't look at that information reliably. So I'm a big fan of chlorothalidone. So it it hurts me to see the results of this study. Uh, Bill Cushman, who is uh, the second author on the study, I don't think believes the results of this study. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm convinced. It's not placebo controlled like his others. you know, the argument uh, that that we've had internally, uh, you know, is m- maybe we should have got 24-hour blood pressures. The problem is, is even if you did, you didn't see the outcome, right? Because that's a surrogate for what you actually want to see, which is cardiovascular disease. And so, so we lower blood pressure at night and there's no dipping or there is dipping. I, I don't know what to do with the dipping because at the end of the day, they had the same number of outcomes. Exactly. And, and, and we'll, yeah, come, to, we'll come to all those things. You know, we are bringing results and, and methods yeah. into the introduction. Can I talk sure. about the methods, Joel? <laughs> I just want to make sure, Jordy. Jordy, have you gotten all of your stuff out? Are you ready? I did enough. I'll I throw think in there more are later. two large observational data sets that use these propensity scores. You know, large insurance claims databases, and they don't actually show the same results as what we had come into the study with, right? So, as we're doing these studies, two large observational studies come out that show the exact opposite. That maybe there's no benefit, potentially harm uh, to chlorothalidone. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah over hydrochlorothiazide. I got to tell you, we got dragged in front of the IRB for this saying, hey, there might be harm here. And so, uh, you know, so so I think th- this is why you need the large randomized control trials, unfortunately. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I... I or fortunately. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I remember discussing the uh, the Ontario data from a decade ago, Irfan Dalla and David Urlink did that, which was published in Annals in 2013. And, you know, like a typical journal club, we, you know, we broke down the study saying, we don't believe these results because of A, B, C, and D. Uh, you know, selection bias, basically saying that higher risk patients get chlorothalidone and and lower risk patients continue hydrochlorothiazide. And that's where it ended up with, right? We said, we are not going to believe these results. And and when the, uh, you know, there's another one which was published in JAMA Network Open from Ontario a couple of years ago from my colleagues. And I said, you know why? I, I actually told those guys, why are you doing this study? You know, Ari Fishani and, and uh, Franz Lederly are doing the trial. Let's wait for the trial because I was confident the trial was going to prove chlorothalidone is better. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's get some methods in. All right. So uh, as, as we have already discussed before, this was uh, it was a multi-center, pragmatic, open-label, randomized control trial. 
Now, the key thing here is, and I think some of you may get bored, but I think this is a really, really cool design, way cooler than anything that has been done before uh, and we have discussed before. And this is something that, I, I'm, you know, Joel thinks we are seeing a lot. I think we are going to see way, way more than that, the way this trial has been designed. It allows you to ask questions that we used to say, we'll never have a study that'll look at hydrochlorothide versus chlorothaladone, right? Like that's what we used to say because there's no money behind it. And this is a way to get really compelling studies done to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not wrong, every almost everyone in the VA until this trial began, if they were on a thiazide, they were on hydrochlorothiazide. Am I right? There are chlorothaladone. Again, my, my clinic is all chlorothaladone. So, so there are okay. chlorothaladone users, but just like the Medicare <laughs> Little data, islands of chlorothaladone. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the vast majority of people at the VA are on hydrochlorothiazide. Hydrochlorothiazide, yeah. So probably even similar to the general population or perhaps even more. So that was sort of the key aspect right. that was exactly. used is that let's, let's take these patients who are receiving hydrochlorothiazide, either 25 milligram or 50 milligram, and then convert half of them to chlorothalidone, which is, and we'll come to the pragmatic aspects later, but being a Veterans Affairs trial, this was, you know, people who were 65 or older, uh, and mostly men, as you can see in, in the results. So, and I, I personally, I don't think that matters as far as the generalizability is concerned, but this issue uh, may come up later. Now, how was the conversion done? Uh, so to Jordi's point, right, it wasn't 25 of hydrochlorothiazide to 25 of chlorothalidone. Because we know chlorothalidone is more potent, and the, the expectation here is, you know, to use equipotent doses, you get an additional benefit. 25 of hydrochlorothiazide was converted to 12.5 of chlorothalidone, and 50 of hydrochlorothiazide was converted to 25 of chlorothalidone. So that way, you know, they were in the ratio of 1 is to 2. And some people argue whether it should be 1 is to 3 or 1 is to, you know, 1.8 or whatever. Yeah, they're your own debt. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a result. I will, I'll back off on that. I'll back Can off. I ask a methods question? I know yeah. I know we're, we're heading into more intense stats, but in the spirit of capsulology, which used to be like the first season of Freely Filtered, the, the first season, <laughs> the chlorothaladone pills that I have access to are all 25 milligram. And I always have to ask my patients to either split them in half or to take them Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll have Joel Top. And I just wonder in the VA system, are they splitting them for the patients in this trial? Or are they having to split them themselves? Or, or how, how are you actually managing the logistics of 12 and a half chlorothaladone every day? So you're right. We sent it with a pill splitter and said, you know, you've got to split these. You know, a lot of VA patients, uh, for cost reasons, we split all our pills. So you, even if a pill comes in a whole thing, we, we give them the, the next dose up and make everybody split. And so, so everyone is used to splitting. So, But, but again, because again, I think this is going to be an important point at the end. This is a small pill and they're splitting it. And so they're taking pill dust effectively. And so I've never heard yeah. patients complain more about splitting than chlorothaladone. Yeah, it's the thing everyone complains about the most in clinic. I hear the exact same thing that this, so for folks who haven't had this experience, this particular pill tends to be more, it's almost fragile. Like it tends to break apart more easily into dust. And so I often will tell my patient because it's so long acting, if you get a third of the pill and two thirds, that's okay. Just take it that way. What they'll tell me is, well, I got a third, a third and dust. Is that okay? And that's a really common sort of description hmm. that you'll What's hear. What's the story with endapamide dosing? Does that come in small enough doses that you don't, it does come in small enough doses? It comes in smaller doses. I think yeah. it's 1.25 and 2.5. And 1.25 is, is roughly equivalent to 12.5? Is that is that the story? Probably closer to 25. Uh, but it's, from what I know, it's... it's 1.25 is closer I to think 25. It's 20, somewhere in between. But it's, it's, it's easier to cut as far as I know. That's the other thing. It doesn't become powder. And I don't know about US, but in Canada, it's available with a perindopril combination. 
in my parenteral. Yeah. yeah, so we often use that as well. I don't know why, but that is a uniquely Canadian combination. Uh, every time I go visit my family, <laughs> they're all on that medicine and nobody in America has ever used that pill. It sounds like a good medication. It was the one that was used in high vet, right? So it was perindopril and dapamide in high vet. Anyway, so let's talk about the pragmatic design now. So everyone was part of VA, which is the beauty of it. Like their medications are in the VA, their medical history is in the VA system, their outcomes are in the VA system, their pharmacist is in the VA, their physicians are in the VA, which is why I think we will see many more such trials. So if, if the patients were eligible, what happened is they were identified and it was like an oral consent process, which is the most mind-blowing aspect of it. Uh, and I would like Dr. Ishani to explain that a little bit more because, you know, the whole, the cost of trials goes up because you're paying these coordinators who spend a couple of hours, you know, dotting the T's, dotting the I, you go through a 20-page consent form and people look at that 20-page consent form and they say, oh, this looks like too much. I'm not going to do the trial, right? So A, your cost goes up and B, your recruitment drops. With an oral consent, you know, I, I think I'll get way more patients in. How did you manage to swing this? Yeah, I think this is probably one of the best things about this trial is getting the IRB to agree. So again, so the formal term is a waiver of documentation of informed consent. So the argument was, uh, so I, I want to back it up. So uh, the way we had to get these folks is through their primary care providers. So the primary care providers were considered subjects in the study also. So they were the ones, they actually had to sign a consent. So I think the first thing that we uh, that the IRB, we convinced them to let us do is send them the consent through the electronic medical record. So they could see the entire consent. It was like a note. They signed the note and that's their way of consenting to, uh, you know, that's their documentation of consent. So I think that's step one is that we've got the provider saying, go ahead and approach my patients. Step two is we then mailed a full consent document to the patients. We, When we called them, we actually, just like you would do in, in person, we, we went through the entire consent with them and we walked them here, the risks, the benefits, if you don't want to participate. The only difference between this and a traditional consent is, again, just the signature, right? So uh, we just had them say, are, are you interested? I'm interested. And then what we did was we went back to the primary care provider to get a scent to randomize that patient. And I think the fact that the drugs are commonly used, you know, they're both on formulary. We also let the primary care provider know all we're doing is randomizing the patient to drug A or drug B. Management of the patient is then entirely on you. And we put that in our research posting in the note saying these patients are on usual care. This is the medication. Feel free to change, modify, increase, decrease, do whatever you want to the medication. You don't have to call us. There are no forms. You do what you need to do and take care of the patient. And I think that went a long way to convincing the IRB that we aren't actually managing these patients. We're just randomizing to drug A or drug B that are both available and then just let them go. So you can blame the poor blood pressure control back on the patients. <laughs> no, absolutely. Because no. that is the point. That, that is one of the take-home points. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there are, no, there are no extra study visits involved as well, right? Because the patients are not like, oh, I have to go and meet Dr. Ishani for this research study. Whatever is happening is just standard of care that is routinely happening. Yeah. So all we did, the only interaction we had with the patients is that phone call. And after that, you know, they, we just let them go to the wind effectively, right? So we didn't call them, remind them they were in a study. We didn't tell them they should take their study pills. We didn't do any outcome ascertainment calls or visits. It was randomized and then kind of let usual care take, take over. 
So can I ask you a question about the issue of the way that patients get their pills in the VA? I do a lot of emulated trials using VA data. So we're constantly tracking like how many pills the person was prescribed versus which ones they picked up and how long they've had them for before they get their next prescription. And there's so much of this like mess of somebody's had three months worth of a pill in their hand and that they're picking up the next one. How did you guys manage that? Or did you just say, we're not going to because you know what, we really want this to be truly real world. And if you're a doctor prescribes you a med, but you've got three months of the other one in your medicine cabinet, you do as you will. Is that sort of what yeah, so, so the way was. the VA uh, handles this is uh, we don't automatically send out bills, right? So we we wait for the patient to call us and say, I'm out, and then we'll mail out the prescription. So what we did, we have a compliance area in the manuscript that we were, were looking at. Uh, so we were very liberal, right? If you, if you just periodically said, yeah, you're filling it, we said, you're still using that medication, even though you know we gave okay. you a 90-day supply and you filled it at 120 days. We're like, yeah, close enough. For the intent to treat model, we said, you're still on the medication. And we didn't consider you to have dropped out. Yeah, but all that data is available to you as part of standard of care, right? The pharmacist is part of your system and, and the investigators are part of the system. So that's the beautiful part of it. This is the advantage of the VA is we, we know who's taking the pills uh, because we, we are, you know, we're the pharmacy for them. Uh, and then I had one other question about the usual care model for blood pressure at the VA. I, I know there are a lot of like great pathways on which like patient gets drug A and then sees pharmacist and drug B and then drug C. Is there like a standard pathway for blood pressure management within the VA that's unique to that system? Or is it really just come to see a primary care doc, we'll adjust the dose if we don't know where your blood pressure is at and going from there? I, I just wonder in, in the starting the trial in 2016, sprint comes out in 15, you, you could imagine quality implementation going on around the same time to change the blood pressure uh, goalposts. Yeah, I think the VA handles blood pressure similar to other large healthcare systems. So we are benchmarked by HEDIS, right? So you can get a HEDIS report on down to the clinic level for how you're doing on blood pressure management. I think the one difference is it's more team-based. Uh, you know, in traditional care, it's you, the provider that are responsible for the blood pressure. You know, we've got pharmacists on your team. We've got nurses on your team. Uh, you can outsource a lot of the blood pressure management to them using protocols. Uh, we've got home telehealth that you can say, you know, I'm going to give you a device. We'll report the blood pressures back either by phone. You call them in for a non-telehealth device, or, you know, we, we try to target about one to 2% of patients with hypertension on our, are on a home telehealth device where it's automatically slaved back to, a, you know, somebody, a nurse, a pharmacist, somebody. That sounds like a wonderful system, you know, I, I, you know, with all these resources that are available. Yeah. And, 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 and all that system's got them 139 over 80. Yeah, the VA has a different guideline, right? You don't necessarily need to follow the AHA, ACC. Uh, so there's a VA DOD guideline that's right. 150 over 90. I, mm -hmm. I would say... Oh, the, you're doing fine. Yeah. Never mind. I, I, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I would say the vast majority of people uh, follow the uh, AHA, ACC, JNC okay. guidelines. I, I, I think it's the rare person that uh, has read the VA DOD guidelines. I, again, I, I shouldn't say that uh, <laughs> on a podcast, but I, I think the vast majority of people... Uh, and then if you look at percentage control, uh, you know, I know 139, it looks terrible on paper, but I think for a healthcare system, I, I suspect if you compare it to other yeah, healthcare uh, systems... I, I, yeah, it's, it's, un unfair, it's pretty unfair shot. Uh, no, no, 139 no, no, no. is the That's subset right. of patients who are over 120, right? That has to be a criteria to enroll in the trial in the first place. You're ignoring all the people with beautiful blood pressure to start. Right. Exactly. exactly right. Yeah. Uh, although it didn't Good change. Point. You know, Good again, point. So plus or minus, right? Like it, I, th I think it's 
good for healthcare system, but it didn't change over uh, you know the two and a half years we had them in there. So, so the point I was making earlier is somebody said you're getting chlorothaladone dust instead of saying I'm just take the whole pill because your blood pressure is 139. They said just keep going with the dust. That's uh, so I, I think that is a take home point. Is it's easy to just say take the whole pill. Okay. Okay. Where where are we swap? You know, I didn't talk much about the population because uh, it's a it's a very broad inclusion criteria. We don't have like 15 exclusion of, you know, exclude anyone who has cancer, exclude anyone who has this, exclude anyone who has that. Very broad inclusion criteria, very simple intervention uh, as we talked about. Uh, and as far as outcomes are concerned, so the primary outcome was uh, something that could be just as simply measured. So it was the first occurrence of a composite outcome, a MACE outcome, non-fatal cardiovascular disease event, non-cancer related death. That was a primary outcome, probably again captured automatically by the VA uh, electronic health record. Just to take a step back, I just have to say Everything that Swathmill just said, this is this trial is the foil to the click trial where every single possible inclusion exclusion criteria was nailing down that perfect patient to take chlorthalidone versus placebo with stage four CKD. And every single parameter was measured multiple times and very, very close study visits. Every single outcome was under a microscope. And this is so much more uh, on the opposite end than you can imagine. Not to say one is necessarily perfect or isn't, right? Because it gets at your, we can talk about this more, obviously, but gets at your generalizability. It gets at your ability to take this and then put it into your real world patient. But it's fascinating to me how they are exactly the opposite in so many by ways. design, right? So mm-hmm. if you want to have large studies that are inexpensive, you can't take people out for this or that. The, the idea is that you're randomizing them. And if there is some noise in there, it's okay. The noise will be on both sides and it will wash out in the end. And some true effect will come out of this. Again, if there's too much noise, you, you've got a problem. So, so you, you've got to have some balance in there. But I think in terms of outcome adjudication and things like that, I, I think we've got some good data that you know we've got pretty high specificity. Could some people have got into the study uh, that shouldn't have been in the study? It's possible. But again, we, we were relying on a primary care provider with that assent to say, yeah, this is a good person for a study. Awesome. You, you mentioned uh, low cost. Uh, can I ask how much did this study approximately cost, if you can say that publicly? Yeah. It's messy. Uh, so even we are trying to figure this out because, you know, they fund the Boston Coordinating Center, which doesn't just do this trial, right? They, they've got other, you know, co-op studies all use a central coordinating center. So, so they've got multiple trials going on. But if you took it like, you know, total cost and you, you say, well, worst case scenario, uh, it's on the order of about $15 million is likely the cost. So, so just to put that in comparison, you know, Sprint, uh, so Sprint did, you know, just under 10,000 people, uh, was about $150 million. And uh, so we were about, uh, you know, 30 to 40% larger than Sprint and we're, we're in at about 15 million. So about 10% 10% of the cost. Of the cost. Wow. wow. A 90% cost reduction. Huh. And and such a simple intervention. So again, just my, my favorite comment is, you know, we really struggled initially getting sites and recruiting patients. Like we were stuck at a thousand patients, in and about a thousand patients for about a year and a half uh, for a variety of reasons. Every day I go to work and I'm thinking we're going to get shut down uh, because we can't just recruit. And the, the best line I ever heard is, don't worry about getting shut down. Your budget is decimal dust in the grand scheme of things. And I said, that is the best <laughs> thing I've ever heard. Uh, we are inconsequential from a budgetary perspective. <laughs> 
It's chlor- chlorthalidone <laughs> dust. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you change it up? What'd you do? Because I, I like to believe that there's somebody out there listening who is trying to recruit patients, who can't recruit patients, and is worried about getting shut down. And he's like, man, Shani, tell me the tell me what the magic trick was. Couple of things. One is I don't think we understood our kickbacks. It was all kickbacks. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. You know, the key is you've got to get in with the primary care provider. And at the VA, primary care providers get lots of work. Everybody and their brother gives the primary care provider work. Anything you don't want to do, you send it to the primary care provider. And so they don't like extra work. And so I think what we did over our time is we really targeted our message. Look, all I'm asking from you is six clicks. Six clicks, 10 minutes of work over a three-month period. And I think that resonated with them. And if you look at our our consent rate for primary care providers, it dramatically increased. I think the second thing we did is initially, uh, we outsourced our call center. We said, oh, the VA's got lots of call centers. We'll we'll hire one of them to do our calls. It turns out they weren't uh, research-focused. They didn't care. So every time there was someone called in sick, it was one of our people that called in sick. So what we did was we we made the call center in-house here in Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, there were five of these... uh, uh, students that we hired, I got to tell you, I, testaments to what they did. All they did is called people. We made something on the order of 65,000 calls to get people. And who were they calling? Were they calling patients or were patients. they calling patients. So, primary care? They were calling the patients. After you the had patients. gotten the yeah. primary care doctor to, to, to hit the six clicks, yeah. then you got your med students to call these patients or students. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me, yeah. students. Well, they were, they were all graduates, but uh. they, you know, new, new degree. And so they, they're looking for a job and we, we would hire them. And, you know, so uh, they, they made about uh, 65 Do you know how to use a phone? Dollars. You're perfect. Right. <laughs> but, but not only that, you have to stay focused on that phone uh, because, you know, when they hit their stride for about two years, they were randomizing 100 patients a week and it wow. didn't make a difference what we did. Right, COVID came. We stopped. That's amazing. Eight months later, we said start. Hundred patients a week. It's really dramatic uh, what they did. Wow, that is so impressive. That is really amazing. I I was doing a trial with hundred patients recruited a week, Uh, but that's the other beauty, right? You could do this trial even with COVID because there's no extra in-person visits necessary. It's just routine care. Uh, So you could recruit even during, you know, of course not during the early part of the pandemic, but uh, subsequently. Uh, Last few things about the methods. I know Jordi's. we are all itching to talk about the results and how do we understand this. As far as the analysis was concerned, they needed 1,055 primary outcome events to provide the trial with a 90% power to have 17.5% lower hazard rate. And 175 to me, it was like, of course, chlorothalidone is going to get you know, way more than 75, 17.5. So I think that's a really, really meaningful power that, that they were going for. And assuming a yeah. 3% annual incidence of primary outcome, uh, which again, you know, 65 plus year old, older people with hypertension, 3% incidence a year is, is very, very, I think it's reasonable uh, assumption to make. Uh, the analysis itself is, is pretty standard using uh, unadjusted log rank test. And there were some pre-specified subgroups that we'll come to uh, in the results that I don't want to talk about now. There was a planned interim analysis done uh, after 500 primary outcome events had occurred. And obviously, you know, the trial was continued because we <laughs> we will see what the results showed. Because it wasn't a flozen. Move on. <laughs> right, okay. Exactly. <laughs> we all sat there. Swappy, are you, are yeah, you done? Yeah, I mean, there is a, if, if you have not read uh, the summary, you know, the, the authors put a really beautiful pressy tool, which is about, uh, people like to use the term pragmatic, but the question is, are, is it really pragmatic? And we, we put that in the summary yeah, as well. That. Yeah, that, that this uh, figure, you know, it shows that it this was, was interesting. extremely it pragmatic. It was interesting. Yeah, this was almost... But you know what that is? You know what that is, Swap? You know, that's a result. 
<laughs> it is a result. Yes. <laughs> Josh, it is, it is with some results. Sure. Uh, so like we touched on earlier, there's a unique recruitment design to this trial and the consort diagram got stuck in the supplement. So I just wanted to talk about that briefly here. 6,500 PCPs or so were contacted for the study and about two thirds consented electronically with their six clicks like Arifa talked about. That opened up a pool of like 1.4 million patients that could have been enrolled. And of those, about 67, 68,000 had that blood pressure over 120 criteria that made them eligible to be enrolled in the trial and were already on HCTC. The five outstanding students of the University of Minnesota called all the 68,000 people, consented about a quarter, about 25% of them agreed to enroll in the trial. And then about 80% of that number actually went ahead and were randomized. It looked like maybe 1,000, 1,200 of those patients, PCPs got cold feet after initially having warm feet. And then on some subsequent review, the remaining individuals were not actually eligible for the trial. Um, so still 13,500 individuals get randomized to chlorothaladone versus hydro continuing hydrochlorothiazide. What do those 1,800 or 3,000 people excluded look like? What, what's going on with that? That's a lot of people that were verbally consented that made it through the first filter. And I, I'm trying to think, you don't have a lot of exclusion. What's going on there? So it's, it's about half and half. So half of those people didn't meet that blood pressure criteria. So we didn't check the blood pressure criteria ahead of time. So we checked blood it pressure. after. So, they so they were, blood... their blood pressure was too good. Too low, yes. And you were worried that the magic of chlorothaladone would drop them down into you know 80 over 50. And they're like, no, we can't have that. Yeah. Because okay. as it was mentioned earlier, we took our best guess at what we thought was an equipotent dose of chlorothalidone, right? It's one to two, one to three. It's unclear. And so, you know, there's, there's a potential. We might make blood pressures a little lower in the chlorothalidone group. So, we, we want it to be extra safe and not include anybody who's who might tank out their blood pressure. That was half. The other half was primary care provider said, no, don't, don't randomize that patient for whatever reason. That particular patient. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm still good with the study, but not this guy. Yes, exactly. And it was usually guys. Potentially. I, I will not it argue usually with was. you on that. Well, uh, we're, we're, we're about to get the table one. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> so just to put one more point on this in terms of dosing, which I think is something we're going to come back to later, almost all the patients who are on hydrochlorothiazide were on 25 milligrams a day of hydrochlorothiazide. That was like 95% of the patients on that dose and about 5% on the 50 milligram dose of hydrochlorothiazide per day. And so the folks who were randomized to the switch to chlorothaladone arm got the same breakdown, 95% ended up on 12.5 milligrams of chlorothaladone a day, and about 5% ended up on 25 milligrams of chlorothaladone a day. So most of these folks on fairly low doses of chlorothaladone. And then both groups were followed over the entire length of the study, the 2.4 years, and it hit the number of outcomes that, that Swap had talked about in, in the method section. So looking at the table one, the comparison of the patients in each group, this is a early 70s-year-old men group that is 97% male. As I think one might guess from a VA-based study, there's really excellent representation of African-American and Black individuals in this in this group, about 15% or so, and about 7% Hispanic and Latino individuals as well. This is both an urban and rural mixed group, about 55 urban-suburban, 45% rural. It's funny. I don't remember seeing urban-rural reporting on so many studies we do, that's a pretty interesting data point. Is there is there research on d differential health effects in those populations? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons we stuck it in there. 
you know, a traditional trial happens at medical centers, right? You know, yeah, that, that's yeah. where the trials happen. That you nobody goes and drives four hours away and recruits patients. It never happens that way. And we've got patients everywhere. And I think that was one of the unique aspects of the trial we wanted to highlight. That you know, forty. This is America, not not the yeah. female portion of America, but this is America. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and in America, where ninety seven percent of people are seventy years old and what and male. <laughs> I'm going to put in a self-plug. I, I led a paper that was published a few years ago in Annals of Internal Medicine in the VA looking at testing for primary aldosteronism in VA patients. And so it was all of the patients from 2000 to like 2018 who had new onset resistant hypertension. And we found that people in rural centers were half as likely to get tested for primary aldosteronism compared to people who are at a more urban or non-rural medical center. So this is definitely a real disparity. It's been shown across a lot of studies in hypertension, though, like th th that's one of a couple that have definitely shown these enormous effects of rurality. Like that was one of the biggest effects besides huh. being seen by an endocrinologist or nephrologist versus a cardiologist. Wait, the cardiologists aren't good at resistant hypertension. Is that what you just said? <laughs> not in our study. <laughs> wow. The least surprising thing of this podcast. Okay. And so thinking about the other demographic information for these individuals, they look like a reasonably sick group of people who we could imagine seeing in a standard nephrology practice. Honestly, 45% had diabetes, 8% have heart failure, many of them have had prior MIs or strokes, at least 20, 25% of them have CKD3 or worse, and 20 some odd percent are current smokers. So that seems like what I would expect for this group of patients and is definitely not a very narrowly selected sliver of all the people who might be special flowers for chlorthalidone. And then in thinking about how many hyper antihypertensives these individuals are on, it seems like a pretty good mix of most people are on two or three or four blood pressure medicines required to maintain a blood pressure of 139, which we'll get to. But we're using appropriate blood pressure medicines at reasonable doses, we think, to at least work on controlling blood pressure here. Is there a version of this study on the cutting room floor that didn't make it where you were like, let's enroll patients on antihypertensive, not on any diuretic, and let's then randomize them to HCTZ versus chlorthalidone? There are multiple iterations of this study on the cutting room. Because I'm salivating for yeah. that study. I, I have to wipe my lips off. <laughs> Why don't I believe you, Joel? <laughs> that sounds like a great study, doesn't it? We're now doing a similar study on beta blockers and dialysis patients, right? Dialyzable, non-dialyzable. You know, the hard thing about all of these studies is we don't want to intervene where we are managing anything, right? We have nobody on, like, so again, I, the one thing I failed to mention is uh, I counted bodies that were involved in the study, no matter how peripherally involved. And this includes the statistician. This includes our, our five callers. This includes me, uh, you know, who I didn't, I don't spend most of my time on this study. There are 18 bodies that were involved in this study total, right? Across time. And so, most studies have 18 lawyers just right. looking at the consent right. form. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we can't be out there starting a drug because someone's going to have to monitor for hypokalemia. Someone's going to have to look at doses and blood pressure response. And so while that would be an outstanding study to do, it's not uh, something you could do as a pragmatic study. So I know we're itching to get to results, so I'll just plow right into table two, which is I think what everyone wants to, to carve apart. So looking at the people on chlorothaladone versus the people on continued on hydrochlorothiazide, there was no difference in the primary composite outcome that composite ASCVD events and non-cancer death, exactly 
702 in the chlorothaladone group and 675 patients in the hydrochlorothiazide group. So 10.4 and 10% hit those numbers with a hazard ratio of 1.04, which completely crosses one in the, in the, in the confidence interval there. Going down by every possible secondary outcome, those are all hazard ratios of 1 or 1.01 or 1.02, really seeing no benefit from switching people from hydrochlorothiazide to an equipotent amount of chlorothaladone. And then thinking about the adverse effects, more hypokalemia was seen in the chlorothaladone group, about 6% of people on chlorothaladone versus about 4.5% of people on hydrochlorothiazide, suggesting that these patients really are taking this medicine that we think causes more side effects. Whenever I see patients and they ask, like, what are the side effects of chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide, I say there's a little more hypokalemia, hypokalemia, probably because it works a little bit better. But here you get more hypokalemia without really working better. Exactly right. You just get the side effects without any benefits. Although, you know, as we said, this might be a function of the design of the study, right? So so you get yes. a bunch of people who like hydrochlorothiazide where somebody has figured out the appropriate dose of potassium supplements, right? So so now you're running around, around stable, uh, on a stable dose of potassium. We know you don't get hypokalemia. And now we perturb the system. And so, but we only perturb half the system, right? So half the people continue on a dose of drug they like and the other half get a new drug. So I think the design contributed to the increase in adverse events as well as the hypokalemia in the one group. But but that's the thing, right? Like, so if, if we believe it is slightly more potent in causing hypokalemia, then, you know, it should be slightly more potent in BP lowering. The argument is that the doctors are going to be more likely to order the potassium mm-hmm. check. Right. And so the, it may be just a, a detection bias. I don't know. There's, there's, I don't know if there's something called a detection bias. I might have just made that up. But the idea is that that these patients are treated differently because they're on a new medication versus the patients that were not changed. Okay, cool. Right. Exactly. That's a good point. That's quite possible. And this is the difference that you get from the pragmatic study versus non-pragmatic design, because it would be protocolized visits that everyone on either arm would be getting the same exact number of visits, the same exact number of tests. So your detection would be the same for hypokalemia. And otherwise, you would also potentially have a protocol for increasing KCL tablets whenever somebody's potassium goes below a certain amount, Or they were on a blinded study drug. Oh, they got switched to a drug. We don't know what this drug is. I better check the potassium. Right. So, so this is one of the, again, it is pragmatic in that w- we didn't specify, right? So so when we talked to these primary care providers, the, the thing we specified is this is usual care. If you want to check a potassium, go for it. If you don't, don't check it. We're not going to tell you what to do. And so, so we went in with the assumption that it's going to be about the same. If you feel nervous, go for it. Check it. Check a blood pressure. If you don't feel nervous, don't worry about it. And it looks like in, in the safety outcomes adverse event section, you, you went through and calculated this out that the average patient had three and a half potassium levels checked in the first year on chlorothaladone versus 3.3 on hydrochlorothiazide. So a little bit more. That's like what one out of every five patients is getting one more lab. So that's, that's enough where you would think about maybe I'll detect a little bit more hypokalemia here. In that mm-hmm. large of a sample size. And then yeah. comparing the blood pressure control in these two groups over time really was rock solid steady at 139 the entire length of the trial, the two and a half years that all the patients were enrolled, whether they remained on hydrochlorothiazide, whether they were switched to chlorothaladone. It seems like there's maybe some therapeutic inertia about this is the set of medications the patient's willing to take. This is the blood pressure we're going to be at. I'm not going to rock the boat a whole lot more than this. 
Yes. So remember, these are clinic measured blood pressures. Uh, you know, so we see this all the time, right? Most people come in with their home readings and say, look, my home readings are all so much better. Blood pressure is measured in a quiet room, five minutes apart. I'm going to bet that they're not. I bet you that this is the one and only blood pressure they got after uh, running in. You, you saw 20% are smokers. They're all smoking and having their coffee and things like that. You, you know, so I don't know how, again, this is real world, but I don't know if it, you could say that this is their actual le- level of blood pressure control. I don't recall seeing, were these only blood pressures from primary care or were they used from uh, other yeah, clinics so, uh, as well? There's a term at the VA called Nexus Clinic. So these are all from uh, Nexus Clinic uh, blood pressures. And what's a Nexus Clinic? Primary care provider. So, uh, you know, if you go see okay. the uh, dentist, uh, we don't take those blood pressures. Or if you're in the emergency department, we don't take those blood pressures. Inpatient, we don't take. So these are just primary care blood pressures. And are you kind of aware of like system-wide blood pressure? Does this look pretty similar to what you expect in a VA clinic? Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know. Jordy's sh- Jordy shaking her head. Yeah. So, so, yeah. <laughs> from, from all of my, the EHR research. Yeah. So, yeah. This is just kind of what these people run at. Yeah. So it's about 68% of patients. You know, I just looked at this like Thursday. So you can look nation, you know, nationwide. It's about 68% have a blood pressure less than 140 systolic across the VA. Okay, there's there's other figures I'm, that you have. I'm happy to go there. I just want to make sure we, we talk through. <laughs> um, so figure two is just a Kaplan-Meier curve looking at the event rate over time. And it really confirms that that hazard ratio 1.0 is really a hazard ratio 1.0. The two lines are totally superimposed on each other, no matter how much you zoom in on the y-axis. No indication of that increased chlorothalidone danger that we were warned about just a year ago. That's right. Exactly. All those, right? No sign at all. Safe drug. And then in the subgroup analysis, we're going to talk about this, I think, a little bit more. Most subgroups really showed no difference in the rate of the primary outcome, except for the subgroup of patients who had a history of myocardial infarction or stroke. People who had a history of one of those events seemed to have a mild benefit from chlorothaladone. And people who had not had one of those events might have a tendency toward a slight benefit from hydrochlorothiazide. At the same time, and I think you say this in the the manuscript, there's so many subgroups and so much stats you're doing. If you're looking for a P of less than 0.05 and you have 20 subgroups you're looking at, you're eventually going to end up finding one or two that hit that criteria. If I was doing a journal club on this paper... I would absolutely say this is statistical nonsense. Uh, so that's likely what it is. However, you, you, again, I'm still going with statistical nonsense. You know, the part that appealed to me when I first looked at this, again, why is it? It's got no biological plausibility. I can't figure out why one group goes one way and the other group goes an entirely opposite direction, right? So it's a qualitative interaction. You know, the p-value on this is ridiculous. It's 0.0002 is what the p-value is. So even if you adjust for these 17 comparisons comparisons, that we did, uh, it's still less than 0.05. Just using a Bonferroni adjustment. Yeah. So still ridiculous, right? Still like statistical nonsense. And I will comment on this more in a bit. Because it came up even during the tweet chat where, you know, you, you were very yeah. you were very straightforward like you are. And I think Sanjay Call was like, you should completely ignore this finding, which I, I find hard to do. Uh, you know, I can make up all sorts of stories for why I would like to believe this, you know, being a chlorothalidone believer, you know, higher risk patients would get a benefit or what have you. You know, ultimately you have to agree. At best, it's a hypothesis generating kind of a thing, you know, it's it's probably a chance finding. So I think one of the things we're taking to the VA is, you know, because it's such an easy study, we should do this again. 
in this subgroup, right? Because I don't know if it's a real finding. We're already in all these medical records. We've already got primary care providers who are consented. It wouldn't take very much effort to do DCP2 just in a group with MI stroke to see if this is really a chance finding or, or, or something significant. I'd love to see the crosstab of which patients were in that group and which patients were on more than three or four meds. Because I, the patients that I'm treating with chlorothaladone are the patients that come to me already on four medications. I'm trying to temporize and switch them to something while I'm figuring out if they've got primary aldo, while I'm figuring out what other enthaline class I'm going to be adding. And often I see some benefit. And so I know that that's just purely the patients that I'm managing. I'm not planning to change my management because they obviously were a little bit like they were the small little subset of the study, not small, nothing small in the study, but they weren't even one of the subgroup analyses because it was cut too many ways. And so I, I'm, I'm curious sort of how, whether or not that the MI and stroke patients encompassed a lot of those because you tend to be placed on additional meds, like an extra beta blocker after you've had your MI, for example. So you're more likely to In be fact, on I'm more I'm working meds. on that paper right now. So it, <laughs> it, it turns out if you look at the balance between uh, the chlorothaladone group and the hydrochlorothiazide group, even in the MI strokes subgroup, they're pretty well balanced. You know, I, we, we have a lot of hypotheses as to why this is. So I said maybe they're all on the higher dose of chlorothaladone. Because you know, one of the problems that I'm sure we're going to get to soon is that everyone's on a low dose of, of hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, it turns out, nope, that's not the case. <laughs> it's the same 5% that are on a higher dose of hydrochlorothiazide chlorothalidone during the study. The one thing, there's a letter that's going to be coming out shortly. Somebody points out is that it's the hypokalemia that drives the adverse events that might mask the cardiovascular benefits of the drug, right? And so because they are all hypokalemic, it masks the benefit we saw in the chlorothalidone. They said, oh, do the right. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that, that. However, the interesting thing is that there is much less hypokalemia in the MI stroke subgroup compared to the non-MI stroke oh. subgroup. It's, it's a weird thing. Those are all uh, ACE inhibitors. Yeah, I, I don't know why, uh, but there's no difference in hypokalemia events in the MI stroke subgroup, but there is in the uh, non-MI stroke subgroup dramatically in, in favor of hydrochlorothiazide over chlorothalidone. That sounds like dialysis literature, <laughs> where we think of these uh, extreme dangers of hypokalemia. Right. So, again, okay, uh, so I want to emphasize likely statistical nonsense, but I, I think it, it deserves mm -hmm. you know, some further it's investigation. A, it, yeah, it's a hypothesis. Yeah, if, you, if you're the grant reviewer, it's not statistical nonsense, it's suggestive and interesting, and we should definitely fund that going forward. Absolutely. And there's a great deal of controversy over this, so it's very much worthy of it. This would be one of the take home messages I have for people is. If you go in with the main findings of this paper, right, that there's no difference between chlor... Again, so, you know, like I said, the chlorothaladone believers don't believe this, but the study suggests that there is no difference between chlorothaladone and hydrochlorothiazide. So that means when a patient comes and sees you, it's dealer's choice. You could pick one or the other and they will do just as well. If you were going to hedge your bets, you could hedge based on this subgroup analysis, right? Because you could pick any drug. So if I was a patient and I had a history of MI stroke, would I preferentially pick chlorothaladone over hydrochlorothiazide? Probably. On the flip side, if I didn't have a history of MI or stroke, would I pick chlorothaladone over hydrochlorothiazide? I don't think so. It doesn't quite meet 0.05, but Again, it, it's right. there. Are, there might be harm in the chlorothaladone group in the non-MI stroke subgroup. So, like I said, you could pick any drug you want, 
but you could hedge your bets and pick the better drug for the better subgroup. And this is not like a new drug coming to the market where, you know, making the choice is way more expensive or, you know, you have to jump through hoops and get coverage. These are both cheap drugs. They are all available easily. You know, your decision is mostly a flip of the coin, how you're feeling that day. Why not make a choice based on this? Jordi. Except what, what I mentioned in the background, right? Swapnil, you're so fortunate in Canada to have this incredible chlorothaladone perendopril. <laughs> or no, it was endapamide perendopril, excuse me, combination. We have nothing in terms of combo pills with chlorothaladone. So we're creating more pill burden for our patients as opposed to choosing these great single pill combos where we can have a patient on an ARB, a calcium channel blocker, and a thiazide diuretic all in one pill. And so, the, I mean, I, I tend to break those up only in my patients where they're uncontrolled mm-hmm. on three or four meds and I really want to just get a little bit more bang for my buck. Or my labile hypertensive patients, for example, where I really want a longer acting group of medications than, than I get from the HTTZ and I'm seeing a suppressed renin and suspecting that they're extra salt sensitive. Those are the people that I really love chlorothaladone in. And everyone else, I really love reducing how many pills they have to take and making them love me when they find out that they can go You know, the one advantage uh, you get when you can send 4,000 providers is you get to see practice patterns. And the practice pattern, so so two practice patterns stood out. One, that's a lot of providers. And none of them want to use 25, sorry, 50 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. None of them, right? 5% of the time. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know why they're so reluctant to do a dose escalation. But the second thing you see is that less than 1% of all the patients that we screened were on a combination pill. Also very odd in that it seems, you know, that would be something people would gravitate to. You know, it's easier to do. It's one one copay. But very few people, at least in the VA, and may, maybe the rest of the world is different, are using combination pills. That's so fascinating. But the combination pills also, they are 12.5 or 25, right? Do you have any combination pills with 50 or hydrochlorothiazide? We don't. No. Yeah. I don't think so. No. And there's this old study that looked at hydrochlorothiazide that said that doses higher than 25 milligrams result in more electrolyte uh, abnormalities and no improved blood pressure control. Or very, so minimal relative to the- the Right. And those were, of course, all with people with intact kidney function, right? And so probably not appropriate for the patients that we take care of, but it became like it became the ceiling. Every mm-hmm. every resident says, yeah, that's a, that's the maximum dose and it becomes gospel. And often when we are switching, you know, when I'm switching someone from 25 of hydrochlorothiazide to 25 of chlorothalidone, that's actually uh, seems like an equivalent dose, but it's a stealth dose increase that we often do. And and maybe that's why I believe it works better because that's why I, what I'm often doing. That's what everybody does. And I think that is another take-home message that I try to get out is Nobody wants more pills. And so an easy move with someone on hydrochlorothiazide is to get them on the same milligrams of chlorothaladone. So 25 to 25. That's a stealth dose increase. It's the same copay. It's one pill a day and you get much better blood pressure controls as everybody here has just attested to because you do. And so when you want to go to get a dose increase, uh, chlorothaladone uh, might be a way to go. There were two other things I just wanted to hit on. I think Arif had brought up the this like critique question of do these adverse events come from more hypokalemia in the chlorothaladone group. And at the bottom of figure one, they actually have a line showing how many patients are on potassium supplements in these two arms, which I thought was interesting. The numbers are 10-ish percent in the hydrochlorothiazide group and 12 to 14 in the chlorothaladone group. And it just seems like a lot of people on potassium supplements in my mind. Do you feel like this, in in having looked at all these prescribing patterns, is this like a, a more common VA move to reach for the potassium supplement, or is it to add spironolactone? If that doesn't work, add some extra potassium on top of it. What do you notice in, in how folks are using those? 
I think almost universally. So, so nobody uses kind of nutritional potassium in, in terms of like the, the light salt or the no salt type things. Again, if they did, we, we wouldn't track it, but I don't, I've never seen anybody. Right. And then spironolactone, I think is also a nephrology move. I, I don't see many primary care. Like if you look at our list of drugs, no, no very few spironolactone prescriptions in there. Yes. In our paper uh, in resistant hypertensives, we found that any time after their diagnosis with resistant hypertension, they their thirteen percent of people ever got started on a on a spironolactone, so they had an absolute indication to be started on it, and fifteen percent of people did. Just so that if that's and then the last thing uh, was something that Jordi had brought up was thinking about the adherence of the patient with the trial medications, and that you'd been able to get these data on how often patients had received their prescriptions, what percent of time the patient had the medicine in their possession, and that translated out into an average number of milligrams of medicine taken by each group, and that those seemed like about 80% of the time patients had their medicine and were taking it, which seemed pretty good, and balanced between the groups, 12.3 on average in the chlorothaladone and 23 milligrams daily on average in the hydrochlorothiazide group. That's that 25 plus 50 milligrams, 95.5 breakdown times 80% kind of number. Also a fascinating finding because remember, we don't call these people. Nobody tells them to take their pills. You know, so we all kind of don't like clinical inertia, right? We don't like it when the providers have clinical inertia because they, they don't want to increase the doses. But here's the benefit of clinical inertia. You just set a patient on a pill and they'll just keep taking it, you know, 80% compliance over two and a half years where nobody's telling them to do anything. Uh, we're not giving it to them for free. They've got to call in for it. So, so I think this is, again, real world, which I like. But I think this is where clinical inertia works in our favor. There's also a thing about vets and following orders that I feel like works really well in this Absolutely. setting. <laughs> uh, that I feel like if I had 80% adherence, that would be amazing. But I feel like I don't have those kind of numbers. No, our um, our resistant hypertension study, we found, I think it was 87% adherence in terms of fills relative to the percent you would expect to get filled. But that's something where I would actually say it's amazing and it makes it a great environment to do pragmatic trials because you know your patients are more adherent than the typical patient. But is that even generalizable? Part of why I love chlorothaladone is because it's great when patients are non-adherent in the real world because it lasts for so long if they just take it a couple times a week. Do you see a, week, a separation in outcomes in a population where they're taking it 50% of the time? That's a good question. I, we can look. Oh, you can look. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. That's very cool. That's very cool. Josh, is that, are, you, are you set? Do you, do you, do you have Those were the big about? things I wanted to talk about. I didn't talk about that 37 over 40 score about how pragmatic the pragmatic trial was that Swap was real excited about. It was super pragmatic. I think we're good saying that. Yeah. It was ultra pragmatic. Pragmatic. I couldn't believe that. Swap. I, I interrupted you rudely before. Do you want to talk more about? No, that no. I mean, it's a penta- <laughs> what? How many? How many faces is that? Is it? Uh, it's an octagon. Octagon. Is I think it's an octagon. octagon. One, two, three, four. Yeah, octagon. One, I mean, they two, look at three, eligibility, four, five, recruitment. Six, seven, eight. Octagon. Yeah, they yeah. look at various. Yeah, I want to put stop right in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but they look at various facets and in all those facets, it's not that just the intervention was pragmatic or the population was pragmatic. Almost in all facets, it was it was quite pragmatic, very impressive to pull off for innovation that will last, I think, with many more experiments to come. And how do you get digged for that primary outcome? Reductions in serious cardiovascular outcomes is relatable to patients. Those small expected effect size, a 17% effect size is not a small effect size. What were they looking for? 
I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to get Perfect any smaller. Answer. That's why we have you on the podcast. <laughs> it's hard to get smaller without really scaling up the size of the, the population. It, you know, again, when, when yeah. we started this, we thought this was pretty big. You know, I still think yeah, it's, I it, it's think, still yeah. uh, quite big. Uh, so it's harder to look for smaller effect sizes. You know, and we could have, like, you know, so we anticipated a 3% event rate. I think we saw a 4.5% event rate. Uh, so I suspect, you know, the next study you could say, well, maybe it'll be a 4% event rate if we recruit on a similar basis and we could look for something smaller. But but I, I think 17.5% is clinically important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, Josh, now are you done, Josh? <laughs> I'm all done. I got Josh, nothing. Yeah. Okay. That was even the supplement okay. too. And we even got some supplement stuff in there. Are you happy, Swap? I am. I'm very happy. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm not happy with the result, but you know, it is what it is, right? I, I, I can't find, you know, we discussed this at, at a local journal club. We discussed it on NFJC. There's nothing to say I cannot accept these results. I have to accept these results. But you know what? I'm thrilled that the authors are looking deeper and are going to be using these data for additional studies to sort of understand it more. Understanding that those are all post hoc analyses. They are not the original intent of the trial. I think much like Sprint, we're going to get some more really cool things out of this trial besides just Arif, the primary paper. you said that Cushman doesn't accept the results. In wh- what corner does he rest, get sleep in? Does he look and he says, ah, here's where the reason that Clothalidone really does work? What, what, where does he find solace? I think the from his, again I'm putting words in his mouth. I, if I had to say why he thinks yeah, that's this, what we're expecting you to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, is that <laughs> you know, if you look at all hat, they were all on much higher doses, and uh, he thinks that the dose was just simply too low. And had we done this and we restricted patients to get into the study who were on 50 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide, we would have seen a different result. Uh, you know, again, the argument. Yeah, is, you were a thousand patients though. Right. But, yeah, you know, there was this nobody is the, What the world uses, right? So four thousand primary care providers. Nobody's using the 50 milligram dose. So like four yeah. hypertension yeah. specialists might be doing it, but outside of us, nobody else is using it. No, the hypertension specialists are using chlorothaladone and spironolactone. <laughs> right. Which, is, right. <laughs> Which is why we didn't include chlorothaladone in our randomization because people on hydrochlorothiazide had likely no preference to switch from one to the other. However, people who were right. on chlorothaladone probably had a mm-hmm. strong preference to not switch our, their patients to hydrochlorothiazide. I would not have consented for that. That's a take-home message as well, right? If your patients are on chlorothalidone, leave them on. Don't think that, hey, it's equivalent to hydrochlorothiazide and switch them to hydrochlorothiazide because that was not the patient population in this trial. That is a fine point to make, but yes, that is absolutely <laughs> true that uh, you had to be on hydrochlorothiazide for us to switch. But but if you were on chlorothalidone, we didn't touch you. And so they, they were excluded right off the bat. I'm, I'm grasping at straws, you know. To, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm curious what the five and 10 year endpoints will be too, though. Like if people are followed out longer and we see, I, I realized that it was powered well, but I, I think because of the pragmatic nature, I think as more pragmatic trials evolve and this design evolves, we're seeing a lot of negative trials. And I wonder if we might have to power these trials just a little bit differently or just follow people longer to just be sure about what we see. Right. Uh, to, and not to say that the trial wasn't designed beautifully. I think it was just such a phenomenally done trial. But I think we're still learning a lot about this space that we're, we're all hoping to understand more. I think of like the time trial with dialysis. There are a couple of other pragmatic trials that have come out, a lot of the COVID trials that were negative. Not to say that any of them would have been positive otherwise, but I, I think 
that we need to still full understand more about this design. Here, there's no type. question about separation of the groups, right? They're on either hydrochlorothalidone. Yeah. You know, no question. Clear separation. <laughs> one of the things about the sprint trial, it's right in the name, is that they enrolled a very high risk population in order to get those results very quickly, right? Yeah. And here you have a much more general population. And sure, you know, that only 7% have heart failure. Though they, a lot of diabetics and certainly an elderly population, you had no shortage of events. But I think Jordy's point is a good one, is that maybe things like better nocturnal blood pressure doesn't materialize in this much time. So we agree. You know, this is the advantage of a pragmatic trial is that, you know, we weren't doing anything before and we're continuing to do nothing. And so we will just continue to accrue events, right? So, you know, it's the benefit. You randomize them, you've balanced confounders, and now you just keep watching for events. So we're accruing about 100 events a month. Planned initial study was to do a, a three-year analysis. We only did 2.4 years because we hit the target sample, uh, the event rate in two and a half mm-hmm. years. We will continue to look and at the three-year mark, average duration, follow-up. Uh, we will look again and see if uh, the results change. Uh, again, you know, I think I'm now the master of negative trials in that I don't think that the results will change. It would shock me if the results change because it is so decidedly negative. But you know, we, we will absolutely look. I don't disagree by any means. I think it'll be very cool though to see if anything does happen to change. I don't know if anyone will argue either direction if they do see that because just out of interest of seeing like again, how this type of design So, so you mentioned you're doing nothing, but that means the patients who were randomized to chlorothalidone, they are staying on chlorothalidone, not unlike a RCT where, you know, they would go back to hydrochlorothiazide. You have left them on what that is or the primary care providers can decide if they want to change. This has always been a function of the primary care provider, right? So, so if you look at the main trial, people switched from hydrochlorothiazide to chlorothalidone. They didn't like it. The primary care provider didn't like it. Somebody didn't like it. And so about 15% of people switched back to, to hydrochlorothiazide. So we then, we're send, we send the Letter to the primary care provider, say, here are the main study results. These patients are all in usual care. You can pick which drug you want to have them on. Because again, you know, the primary outcome is that they're about equivalent. And so we anticipate, again, clinical inertia will keep people on the drug to which they were randomized. Excellent. Excellent. Jordy, you have some questions about what ifs, don't you? Yeah, I mean, so I, I described sort of the patient that I start chlorothalidone in that looks quite different than I think the trial focused on. It's not that they would have been excluded because there were so few exclusion criteria. But I, I'm curious, we talked about the what-if trial. We could do chlorothalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide for first-line agents. My what-if trial personally would be, what if we started in these people for end-line therapy when we're making these switches in, in late-line and like uncontrolled, sort of more severe resistant hypertension if we would see some benefit? And I don't know if you're, what your thoughts are on that or what your sort of perfect trial would be if you get to do your next trial, besides the people who've had prior so MI and at the group that runs this, so, so it's the Cooperative Studies Program kind of funds the trial. We are in a group called the Point of Care Trials. And so, you know, so this, the initial genesis of this, you know, again, just it's a thought experiment, is that we randomize people at the point of care. Someone is going to order a thiazide and the computer box pops up. It says the study's been going on. Are you okay with this patient participating? You click yes. And then it random it picks the drug for you, right? You just order thiazide and then it picks which one gets filled. That would be the ideal. You know, I don't think we have a, a nimble enough electronic medical record system as yet to figure out how to do this. But I think that's where we are hoping to go is that we could do all of these at the point of care so that we don't have to then call 
call patients and things like that. The consent just happens kind of as part of usual care because you, the provider, don't care. Like, you know, ASAR, mm-hmm. I don't care. Or, you know, beta blocker one, beta blocker two, I don't care. And so we could just embed this right into routine clinical practice. In addition to comparing different meds, have you thought about in those future designs comparing initial starting doses? Because you can imagine therapeutic inertia carrying you pretty far. I feel like when I had clinic at the VA as, as a fellow, HCTZ, the starting dose was always 25. And so you always ordered 25 because that's what the box came up in and I didn't have to click anything else. And if instead it came up as HCTZ 50, click, I'm done. I'm going on the blood pressure medicine. I think you might actually see some more separation of the curves if you just had a, a higher starting dose. Is that something you could think about doing too? That's called defaults. And it's this really cool area of like implementation trial work that's being done right now. There's not a lot in that space that I've seen personally, but this is like a whole area where they're changing defaults for providers where you automatically see something different as a way to change behavior. Because we know that giving people like those warning flags is the best way in the world to get somebody to ignore what you're being suggested <laughs> to do. Yeah. Nudge, nudge defaults. Turns out it works. Yeah. yeah. Makes a huge difference. Right. Swap, do you have any other thoughts? Uh, so uh, on this trial, like I said, I started off as a chlorothalidone fan and, and I tried really, really hard to look at this to find weaknesses and there are none. So, you know, sometimes in, in my clinic, I would often switch people even if their BP was okay because I believed chlorothalidone was better. And that's something that I will definitely stop. So if, if someone's blood pressure is well controlled and everything is fine, I will stop switching them just for the heck of it because I think it's a better drug. Their BP is not controlled and, you know, they're on 12.5. I might do 25 of hydrochlorothiazide rather than switching them to, you know, half a pill with some dust that they may have to eat. Uh, On the other hand, of course, if they are on 25 or 50 of hydrochlorothiazide and I need a more potent dose, then sure, I'll still reach for chlorothalidone. But I'm pretty sure I'm sufficiently confident with these results that, you know, for many simple situations... I'll feel more comfortable leaving them on hydrochlorothiazide. I think a corollary to that is because there are some... I'm with you. I I would switch them 100% of the time. And as a result, I never used a combination pill with a thiazide because the only one we had is chlorothalidone (laughs) atenolol, uh, which is worse than garbage, right? Right. And so I never used a combination pill with a thiazide. But now with these results, there are lots of thiazide combination pills that are now available to us uh, that we can use. And as we said, you know, I think combination pills are where we should really be focusing our efforts. Okay. Josh, any final thoughts? No, I think this is an extraordinarily well done trial, even if I don't like that I have to not switch everyone to chlorothalidone. I think there are people who I will still do it in if I don't have controlled blood pressure, if I want to cut down on pill burden and can go to chlorothalidone three days a week instead of hydrochlorothiazide every day. But I think the number of people who I torture by changing all their meds for them when they come to see me the first visit is, is reduced by this trial. So that's probably a good thing. Excellent. Yeah. I found the study to be extremely well done, very compelling. You know, it, like like Swap, I was trying to poke holes in it. My priors were so far on the side of chlorothalidone. And I find the data compelling. And I think I'm ending up in the same places. You know, the reality is that my patients come to me when they're their first consult, they never have their blood pressure well controlled. They're almost always on hydrochlorothiazide. And making the switch to chlorothalidone oftentimes gets their blood pressure to go. And that's not what the study was disputing. This study doesn't comment on that behavior at all. I think that behavior is still the right thing to do. I think you're still going to get medical benefits from getting better blood pressure control. We've got tons of data that shows that. But 
when patients' blood pressure is controlled, their blood pressure is controlled. And to think that there's some additional property of chlorothaladone that's going to cause additional benefits beyond blood pressure control is just magical thinking. Excellent. Swap, any tubular secretions? Sure. So I, I, I think while I was on my way to ASN, I, uh, at the airport, I picked up a book by uh, an author, Canadian author called Louis Penny. I had not read any of her books. It seems she's a New York Times bestseller. She's, but I had not read a book until I picked that up at Orlando. She's written, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 books. It was a, you know, nice page, rapid reader. But now the key is that Amazon Prime has bought and taken that series to uh, the television. It's called Three Pines. I know Nayan is not here, but he's a fan of, of Louis Penny. So I'm, I'm getting the opportunity of mentioning that. So Three Pints is on Amazon and it's it's extremely Canadian. You know, it's all the first uh, <laughs> the first season is all in winter with snow and curling and all that. But uh, it's a fun, it's a really nice TV series to look at. Three Pints on Prime by author uh, Louis Penny. I've seen a couple episodes. It's very good. Uh, Jordi, got any uh, tubular secretions? Yes. So I'll say spoiler alert before I get started. Uh, so anybody who does not want to hear any details about the Last of Us series, please go on mute for a couple or turn down the volume for about a minute. But uh, I'm watching The Last of Us show on HBO Max. It is based off of a video game that is quite epic. It's uh, based off of the Cordyceps fungus, which is the fungus that causes ants to become zombies, where it, they actually change their behavior. It's been around for millions of years, actually, and has evolved along with several ant species and makes them sort of create do this like suicidal, absurd behavior. And so it, it evolves into in, the ability to uh, end up uh, infecting humans and creates the zombie apocalypse. And this is the least zombie apocalypse-like zombie apocalypse show you will ever see uh, because it has these incredible storylines. Episode three is the last episode of any TV show you ever need to watch. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I... I, I'm just done. If you like Nick Offerman also on top of that, just watch that. Don't watch anything else for the next two years. Also Were you a video game issues. player? Did you play the game on, on PS5 or 4 or whatever? I play a lot of video games. Josh, I what do you got? That one. So I never cross promote between the podcasts that Joel and I are on, but I wanted to do that today, partially because we had this great discussion with the Glockenfleckens and partially because I think Joel knows we need to get that episode out soon. So Will and Kristen Flannery are also better known as Dr. and Mrs. Glockenflecken. He is an ophthalmologist who is well known for making short, funny TikTok movies about the fun and crazy and ridiculousness of medicine. And they are starting their own podcast. And as part of that, they're going on lots of other places to spin off and, and try to promote their show. For some reason, they thought that Channel Your Enthusiasm, the two-hour long <laughs> renal physiology podcast we do once a month was the right audience for them. <laughs> I don't convince him. Yeah. No, what they asked for. I got a I got a cold email from their publicist, and I was just like, "Sure, we'll we'll see if we can op open up our schedule and have them on." And it did, and they came on, and and they were, and they looked, they were like, "What are we doing here? You do right. what?" <laughs> and so when we told them that the episode we recorded a week ago is going to come out in about a year, they seemed not so excited for their po podcast promotion <laughs> prospects. But I think the plan is to release that. What was an hour-long conversation, hopefully cut down by a lot because we were kind of rambly, as a special episode in the Channel Your Enthusiasm feed. I think it was a really insightful look at these two people who've had a very unique look at life in medicine as a doctor and as a spouse, but also as a patient. Will has had this cardiac arrest experience that's really profound and, and 
helpful to read about and really affecting. Um, and I think it was a really fun and really moving conversation. And I'm looking forward to hearing what Joel does with the editing there. Okay. Arif, you got a tubular secretion for us? Yeah. So uh, I have a book. It's a little older book. Uh, I just discovered it. It's called The Body, A Guide for Occupants uh, by uh, Bill Bryson. Uh, <laughs> It's just a phenomenal book. You know, I, I tend to steer away from medical books. Uh, you know, it's like my day job. I don't want to do it, you know, on pleasure time. This is a really great read. It's a lot of fun, lots of interesting history, things you didn't know, you know. So I thought it was just really phenomenal. Great section up for the kidneys and on uh, salt consumption. And uh, this is what's going to kill us. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So this is March. It is March Madness. And more importantly, it is Neff Madness. So go to ajkdblog.org and take a look at the Neff Madness content and then go to nefmadness.com and fill out your bracket. It is a great field this year. We've got a pod crawl. This is eight different podcasts that are going to be talking about all the content on Neff Madness. So you can get everything you need to know to fill out your brackets by listening. We have the Curbsiders. They're going to be talking about mineral corticoid antagonists with Matt Luther. We've got Core IM talking about kidney transplant. Cardio nerds are talking about heart failure devices and kidney health. Freely Filtered is talking about thrombotic microangiopathy. ISN Global Kidney Care is talking about IgA nephropathy. The Cribsiders is talking about transition from pediatric to adult care. The Fellow on Call are talking about onconephrology. And the Nephron segment is talking about transgender health and CKD. It's a great lineup. Nefmadness.com slash podcast crawl to get links to all these different podcasts. Take a listen to them. A lot of work is put into them. They should be very good. Net Madness should be awesome.